0: We're going to probably park ourselves in uh, Psalm 73. We won't get there for a while. Most of the verses I have up here, so you won't have to flip through your Bible too much. If you want to take notes, just write this, some of this down. Um, I'm excited about the next chapter. We're going to make a conclusion, draw a conclusion on the laver today. Um, just want to make sure I got... Uh, okay, so just a little recap of last week. Uh try to be as brief as possible if you remember the Lord before the, the night of the Lord's Supper he took that bowl of water and he washed the feet of the other disciples and he says to them that you're clean but you got to keep your feet clean so that he tied it back to the laver with those priests when they were when they were laboring for God serving God fellowshipping with God they were clean already but God said you got to keep your feet clean because they'd get dirty obviously at the work of the Lord so uh, A good example to us is the Lord was teaching His disciples that the Word of God would keep them clean in in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. That's what He was teaching them. But there's still more to this because we still haven't answered the question about the brass and the combination of the water and the brass and the laver. Every detail matters to God. And I I have found this statement fascinating because we already know that the the, the laver... It's filled with water, was made of brass. Remember, there's only two, art- two pieces of furniture made out of brass. The altar, which was judgment, and then this uh, piece, the laver being made out of brass, was also a picture of judgment to some degree. And so we got to understand better what that means, and we'll dig deep into that this morning. But this is what I've always been fascinated by. And He made the laver of brass, and the foot of the brass of the looking glasses of the women assembling. So in other words, he took the mirrors, This the brass that they used was a type of mirror. And he, he took it, gathered it from the ladies, and then he, he, they melted it, and they made themselves the laver out of the looking glasses. And I, I always found that was fascinating because if you think about the water as a type of word, and then you think about brass being also a mirror, a reflector, every time those priests went in there to clean their hands and their feet, they saw a reflection of themselves. It's important. They had to see it. Not only was it a reflection, it was a magnifier. They looked in that thing and they had to say, whoa, every time we approach the Word of God, we look into the Word of God, we see ourselves as we are. That's important. Because when you see your adamic nature, there's something wrong. And you begin, as you study the scripture to see yourselves, you begin to see the image of God. And then that, as you see that image of God, and you you begin to be in conflict with yourself. You begin to judge yourself in relationship to God. So as you read the scriptures, you start to say, whoa, I need to, I got some things to clean up here. I'm nowhere close to being what God is like. And so that's what those priests were. As they went to the water, they may not have understood that, but they just, you know, they saw that reflection. We see the reflection of ourselves, and we compare it to the image of God. And when we compare ourselves to God, not each other, that's that's unwise. But we compare ourselves to God through the Scriptures. We're wise, but what happens is we find conflict. And in that conflict, we find judgment. That's where the brass comes in. That judgment is saying, I need a course correction. And that course correction has been since the day you entered a new birth. You've been on a course correction with God being more like him because you're putting off the old man, the Adamic nature, and you're putting on the new man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that process of life, there's a constant conflict. And in that conflict, we find ourselves judging ourselves. Now, people today don't like the word judgment. I think, it's, I think that's one of the doctrines, false doctrines, that's permeating the churches today. We don't want to judge ourselves. Our sin's been taken care of. Why would we judge ourselves? This is why I think Christians are sick, they're weak, and they're dying off. Because they're not doing what God intended them to do, is judge themselves. We live in a world of psychology. You don't want to judge yourself. That's, guilt. That's, that's, that's a process of guilt. I say the guilt remains until you judge yourself and deal with it. You'll see how this is all going to come together here in a minute. Because that water and that brass laver, that reflector of oneself, I'm getting ahead of here, Is a type of the Word of God that reveals things. The Word of God, in Hebrews 4, verse 12, is quick and powerful. Now, the word quick is alive. When you see, you hath He quickened, means He made you alive. You were dead in trespasses and sins, and He quickened you. He made you alive. So, that's the term uh, for alive. The Word of God is living. It's not a dead book. It's a living book. It's powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword piercing the spiritual man. It's piercing what really is you. This outward body is nothing to God, but the inward, the soul and spirit means everything. Dividing a sunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow and look is a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. So as we looked into the word and we began to compare ourselves to the image of God, we find ourselves in conflict or find ourselves having to change. That's the process God uses. He takes a negative judgment and he turns it into a positive. That's always been the method of God. The world says we don't want a negative. We want everything to be positive. They're lying to themselves. This is why they're full of guilt. This is why they're depressed. This is why they need so many drugs to take care of their problems because they don't realize that this is God's method. Take a negative judgment. To deal with something that needs correction to make it a positive. Well, we get that right, we're going to be a lot better off. But the Word of God is a revealer. This is why people stay away from the book. Because it, oh, this is why they stay away from church. Funny, Eileen and I were driving away this morning. You know, it's pretty obvious when you have a tie on where you're going. And uh, they were just out just in groves, you know, walking and biking. and their convertibles, getting ready to golf, and I enjoy all those things, but not today because I want to be under that, the Word of God, to see if there's something in my life that could be better for God. That's that reflection, oh, I've got change to make. It's amazing here how this all ties together with James chapter 1 where he, he writes about this. Now, notice the language here; it's important. Because he talks about being a hearer of the word, like a man that's beholding his natural face in a glass. He looks in the mirror, and he says, something's wrong. Everybody this morning woke up and looked in the mirror. I think. I hope. Yeah, you look pretty good. Most of you. You looked in the mirror, and you said what? You judged yourself. You said, man, I got work to do. I've got a course correction to make. Right? You did something. But a man that looks in the glass, the mirror, the word of God, and does nothing about it, what a waste. That wasn't the purpose. But whoso, now watch the language here. He's talking about a mirror. That's what the word glass is. Whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty, instead of using the word mirror or glass, he uses the Word of God. And the way he describes the Word of God there, he says it's the perfect law. And I'm imperfect. So I'm the one who's got to change when I look into the Word. The perfect law of liberty, and he continues. He's not a forgetful here, but notice he's a doer. This man, here's the positive, shall be blessed. So he looks in the mirror, the Word of God, and says, I've got to change. He does something about it to do something. It means you have to judge yourself to do it. And when you do it, the Bible says, here's the positive, you're blessed. That's God's method. That's always been the process of God. It's a maintenance program. And in the process, he's conforming us to be more like Christ. That's the beauty about it. Our walk with God, which is the cleansing, the whole process of keeping us clean, is so we have that walk, so we're blessed, we're in fellowship, and we have true joy, and we don't carry guilt, and we have love to love others who can't be loved or shouldn't be loved. That's the, that's the work of God, conforming us to the image of the Son. Our nature is not to love. Our nature is not to care, not to be kind. But God takes all that and corrects us, putting off the old man, in the reflection that we see, saying, "Man, I want—I don't want to be like this. I want to be like you, God." And God says, "Well, we're going to work through that, but we need to—you need to recognize this change, this change, and this change. Your whole life is about change." But say, "Oh, that's so negative." No, God uses it to bless you, to make it positive. So. So how does this all tie in with judgment again and, and the brass? Remember, brass is a form of judgment. Well, you can't make course corrections until you recognize you got a problem. So the Word of God is a great revealer. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 4. It, it knows your motives. It knows your very thoughts. And it, makes, and it, for, it pushes you to change. So the Bible says in in 1 John chapter 1, it's really important to understand the context. This is not about your relationship with God. 1 John, in confessing your sins, is about fellowship and about joy. Remember, the altar took care of the relationship between you and God. The sacrifice was done. You were made clean, the washing, one time. But as you went over to that laver and you kept your feet clean, you have to do this maintenance program. And that's what brings joy and fellowship with God. The whole context says if we, we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. But if we say we have sin, then we, we abide in him and we have joy and we have fellowship. Read the context, I'm summarizing. So here it says, if we confess our sins. So as I look into the scripture say, whoa, I'm not aligned with God on this. This is almost a daily thing, folks. I'm, I'm, I personally believe in trying to deal with my sins daily. I'm not that good enough to say, well, I just don't sin. In my thoughts, in my ways, what if I go without prayer for the day? That's a sin in itself. So, to confess my sins means i got to judge myself. How do I judge myself? Do I compare myself to any of you? Well, that would be foolish. Because if we do that, we're all going to find good and bad and all that. We're going to make ourselves feel better. But if we compare ourselves to the Word of God, that reflection, we have to say, something's wrong. i got to change. And we confess it. So if we confess our sins, we have to judge ourselves. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. That's When you sin and you confess, God takes care of it right then. Now, your sins are forgiven. I get it. But God wants you to recognize you still have sin, the Adamic nature, and as a result of that, we don't. It's not that we have a relationship; it's already established. You have fellowship with Him, and you have joy with God. You ever seen Christians that are just depressed all the time? I mean, we all meet them. You know, they just their their arms are down, their you know their knees are weak, and you know the life's you know, life's so terrible, and you know I always wonder about folks like that that are. I don't question their salvation, but I question whether they understand the maintenance program from God, getting to the laver and staying clean. As a result of not doing that, they're finding great guilt in their life, and guilt leads to depression. I just, I'm a simple-minded in this. I believe most of our problems, if not all of our problems that we deal with like psychologically and all that, mentally, emotionally, have a spiritual root that can be taken care of spiritually, but people try to take care of it on the surface and it doesn't work. They find no purpose. I've talked to people who have everything, can travel the world, have all the money, and they're absolutely miserable. How is that? They've got everything. You would think the world would say, man, they got everything, right? You know, the homes, the cars, the travel, they have the freedom. And they're miserable. Some of these people committed suicide. And I think to myself, or thought about committing suicide, you say, why? Because they don't know about the purpose of God. And they're carrying all this guilt and shame from sin. And they don't realize. Now, for believers, it goes back to that. The joy and fellowship is lost when they don't confess. Now, I spent a little bit more time than I wanted to on that. But... uh. One of these days I'm going to get through this. Uh, dealing with our sins keeps us clean and in fellowship with the Lord. Really the summary statement here. And I love what Bob Jones uh, Sr. said. Either sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. The old uh, saying from, from Bob Jones. You know, it's funny. I, I Some time ago, <clears throat> I remember having a conversation with someone and They were just going to town, just the ego was, the pride, it was just oozing. I got, oh, you know, I got this, and I accomplished this, and I I just was, I was getting frustrated, you know. And, you know, instead of just humbly just listening, boy, the old Adamic nature just started to take over. So, oh, I can't take this anymore, I'm going to show this guy. So, I started talking about what I've accomplished. You know, two egos in the same room is not a healthy thing. And all of a sudden, oh, I've done this, and I've done this, and I own this. And I stopped myself short and said, what am I doing? I walked away from there. I felt about that big. I didn't accomplish anything. I just stooped to his level. Now, he was lost. I stooped to his level, and I said, there's a perfect example of, I just dropped to my knees. and said, God, that was sin. That's boasting. That's pride. Everything I have comes from you. All the power that I have comes from you. The skills, the talents, the prospering, everything comes from thee. It's like Pilate saying to Jesus, says, don't you know I have the power to crucify you? He says, you have no power unless it be given to thee from above. Man, sorry about preaching there, but, you know, that's preaching material. So now we're going into chapter 2. And uh, so this is our 10th week. There's no way we'll do this in 20 weeks. Um, but again, this is where it gets really interesting. Spiritually, I need you to put your spiritual thinking caps on here because that's what this is about. We're ending into the holy place. And we've got to talk about the conditions on the outside before we talk about going into the holy place. Now, we've talked about it, but just as a reminder, they worked in conditions And you have to relate this now, spiritually, to the conditions you work in. In the world, in ministry, family, everything. And you just kind of, you'll see the correlation here, but they worked in dirty conditions. It was dusty. It was hot. It was uncomfortable. It was repetitive. It was demanding. And sometimes Christianity is just that way. Someone said it, and I thought it was perfect. ministry can be messy. And anybody who spent time in ministry, and I mean really giving themselves over to help people, will find themselves that it's, it can be messy at times. Sometimes miserable. i tried to help people with my wife and I said we're going to have a second chance ministry. Now, nah, there's no more second chance ministry. We were bringing people in that had a lot of problems. And, you know, we just realized we're probably not equipped to handle that. This is by the grace of God that I, some people can and some people we couldn't. But we we brought people in and found ourselves just frustrated. I mean, people just, you know, you give them everything. You take care of them. You you put them under the word. You you give them every opportunity, but they still choose sin. And over and over, they finally you say, hey, I, I'm not going to carry you. I'm not going to hold your hand, you've got to do this on your own. And when they choose not to, it's very discouraging because your whole goal is to see them know Christ and to walk with them. And you say to yourself, man, I don't feel like doing this anymore. I don't want to, I don't want to help people. Dusty, hot, uncomfortable, repetitive, demanding, but God says, that's, says, you just need to find a place to get some rest. And then I'll get you recharged so you can go out there and do it again. Because if you don't learn where to get rest and where to get close to God and where to get his power, you will not continue in ministry. You won't continue in serving God. You won't be faithful to God because these conditions are real. The conditions lead to discouragement. Have you been there? Yes, we all have. I think it's one of the greatest weapons used by Satan to discourage you, to get you out of doing things for God. Flesh, you get worn out, burn out physically, mentally, emotionally. You find this routine, that hardness that kicks in. Like, oh, I just do, you know, we get up Sunday morning, we go to Sunday school, we go to Sunday school. The other day we were going to church. They said, you're going to church again? <laughs> Somebody was visiting with us. You're going to church again? Yeah, we're going again. Want to come with us? And they did. So they didn't have a choice. But anyways, boredom. Heart not in it, you know, that happens at times, you know, you just, you kind of go through the motions. These are real conditions that Christians face, uh, whether they're in full-time ministry or part-time ministry or ministry in any aspect, these are the things, as I said last week, you have three enemies. The world is against you, the devil is against you, and your own flesh is against you. How's that for positive preaching? But I got something good news. Romans 8.31 says, If God be for you, who can be against you or against us? So yeah, they're against us, but God's greater than all those. And he, can go, he is for us in all these things. But you got to learn how to find that place with God to get the rest, to be able to do these things without ending up quitting or overcoming the, these difficult conditions. Let's see here what's happening. All right. So here's where you enter into the holy place. Now the holy place was also known as the sanctuary. And uh, we're going to conclude on Psalm 73 for a reason. But the holy place is found in Exodus chapter 26 and Hebrews chapter 9. It clearly indicates the outer tabernacle, the holy place, and the most holy place. This compartment is where most of the priests spent their time after they were uh, doing the outside work at the tabernacle. They would go in here. And they would find respite. They would find something special. So I'm going to kind of think of this in the spiritual realm. You're a If you're born again, you have the spirit of God dwelling in you. You are a spiritual man, as the Bible says. So that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to do what? Be strengthened with might. So it's important to go into the holy place to be strengthened with might. How? By His Spirit. Where? In the inner man. Now you're made of body, soul, and spirit. You're a spiritual creature. Trinity, just like God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so there's the, 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 the physical outward parent can wear down, but you find yourself in the spiritual realm trying to connect with God. And the place to connect with God is going to be in the holy place. The sanctuary. It's time from with God. You'll, you'll, this will start to, we'll kind of go through this in, in much more detail, but just a general summary today. And that's found in Ephesians 3, verse 16. So again, strengthened with might, something we need daily, by the Spirit in the inner man, the spiritual man. So here's the holy place. As if you were to pull back the, all the curtains that were covering The holy place and the most holy place. There were four coverings. We won't get into all that uh, yet. We might at some point. But uh, obviously, they created some sort of cooling system by doing that. But nevertheless, it's a place to discover the beauties and perfections of God. The outside was ugly, the outside tabernacle had no appeal to it. It was bloody, it was ugly. But as they entered into the holy place, the whole perspective changed. It was beautiful. it was lined with gold. It had all the colors the blue, the red, the purple, the white. and, and, and then you had the, the instruments there, each detailing something beautiful. And it, this was a place of refuge for those priests, but a place of refuge for us to grow spiritually. I want you to think of it this way. Put your thinking spiritual thinking caps on. When those priests were working on the outside in the bright sun in the wilderness, what happened to those pupils? They went to nothing, to not allow too much sun in. So as soon as you go from somewhere really bright to somewhere that would be somewhat dark, remember, the only source of light was the candlestick. It didn't didn't bear a lot of light. It didn't like a lot of lumens, as they would call, call it. So as they went in from this bright light and their eyes, their pupils being small, they would go what happens when you go into a dark room? You can't see anything. You're, it's pitched. I don't know, even if there's a little bit of light on you, still, your eyes can't adjust. So it would take time. As they entered in, it would take time for their eyes to open up and to begin to see the things of God. And thus it is with our life. As we enter into the holy place, we can't see very clearly, especially in the beginning. But as time goes on, we, our eyes begin to open more and more and more. And we begin to see all the perfections of God and all the details that He and all the beauty of God. But it takes time. God's not going to give that all to you at once. He's going to give that to you over a lifetime. And so thus it was the priests, as they went in, they they probably could barely see but as time went on they could begin to see all the details of the ta- the showbread table and then the candlestick itself and then they would have that the smell the sweet smell coming off the golden altar of incense and and there there was quietness like nobody's business it was quiet in there to the point of deafening quiet you ever been in a place where it's so quiet you can hear everything in your your mouth your 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 own self but Sometimes that's where we need to go. It's a place to grow spiritually. It's a place to to get to know God. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come unto me all that you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, I realize it's a salvation-type context there, talking about people that were lost to come and get rest. But it's for believers that are saved also who need rest. They need to find the place of rest. And here he says, take my yoke and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. You shall find rest unto your soul. God wants every believer who labors for him to find rest. And the place of rest is found in the holy place. The inner man, the spiritual man, that's where he's strengthened. That's where he finds the perfections of God and the beauty of God. Are you guys with me on this one? Oh, man, I'm out here on an island. As we study out the holy place and all its instruments, we'll discover that it's a place God has provided for his people to find rest from their labors. If you don't, you will not continue for God. If you don't learn to connect with God and how to connect through the table of showbread, through the golden candlestick, through the golden altar, in the holy place, you will not survive your Christian walk. It's impossible. God meant it to be this way, and that's why he brings out all the details of the holy place, because it's there where we learn about God. We learn, and you'll see here, the table of showbread, what it means. The golden candlestick and the altar of incense. These are powerful pieces of furniture that help us in knowing God. We talk about the table of showbread. Exodus 25 and Leviticus 24, what's it going to teach us? It's going to teach us that it's not only about the written word, but it's about the incarnate word. It's all about, that's where you feasted on the word of God. You feast on the scriptures, just like Mary and Martha. You remember those two? Martha, what was she doing? She was encumbered about, burdened by her duties. And there was Mary what was she doing? Sitting at the feet of Christ, feasting off the word of life. Feasting, learning. One was laboring and frustrated. And Martha, Martha, as Jesus said, Martha, Martha, thou art cumbered and full of care. Or careful, full of care. She missed it. She said, Mary hath chosen the good part. What did Mary do? She sat at the feet of Christ and learned to feast. One was frustrated and one was filled with joy because she learned where to go and rest. That's what the table of showbread will be all about. The golden candlestick, that light source, the only light source in the entire place was found there. It may not have been bright. At least the moment you walked in, as time goes on, that light became brighter. And brighter. How many have been saved for a while all of a sudden the things you see now you're saying whoa. But sometimes you get to take that for granted. You know you got to remember when you were a new believer and you started hearing truth some of these truths for the first time you said whoa I get it like your excitement and the joy it brought and then years later you're like yeah I've heard that before. True? That's not what God intended. He wants you to be excited about it all the time. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. But Jesus also is the light source of this world and for our lives. So we're going to learn about that. And then the golden altars that, that, that frankincense that altar, they call it the art of apocryphy, which is the art of perfuming, where they would lay it onto the altar as burning and it would bring forth the smell. That was a picture of the believer's prayer life. It's interesting that it was closest to God. Where was the presence of God here? Behind that curtain, that curtain's open now. What was closest to God? It's even listed in Hebrews as if it's in the whole, most holy place. It's not, but it almost w- writes it as if it's in the holy place because it's closest to God. You want to get close to God? You've got to have a prayer life. And we'll talk all about that. that we're going to dig deep into the golden altar. But also, it's about Christ as the sweet-smelling savor and our life reflecting that sweet sm- savor. So let's study carefully as we conclude here. In Psalm 73, Psalm 73, we're gonna look at two Psalms, one today and, and one next week, regarding the holy place, the sanctuary. We can park right here. This is th- this is a sermon in itself. But let's just spend a few minutes here, Psalm 73, uh, verse 1. Truly God is a is good to Israel even to such are of a clean heart. Now notice this that this psalmist when he writes I believe it's Asaph when he writes this he's struggling with something immensely that all of us struggle with as well. We we come to know Christ and we suffer, we struggle while it seems like the world just keeps on going its merry way. So here's what this 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 saint of God does. He says, but as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh sleep. In other words, he was close to giving up. He said, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. How is it that God allows people that hate him, the hypocrites, the corrupt, to prosper? I mean, I don't know about you, but isn't it, just don't we want to pray? Does God just do something to shake their world that they know that you're God? And God just lets them go. let them continue on their merry way. And yet in my old world, I'm struggling. And that's what happened to this saint. He said, hey, verse 4, they have no bands. They, they, got, they got no issues. They got nothing constraining them. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as other men. Now we think that by the way. But then you get into their world that they're just they're just they're they have no life. They got no purpose. They're scared of death. So when they this is the, but the perspective sometimes is this. They are not in trouble as other men. It's not true. But that's how we see it sometimes. Neither are they plagued like other men. They're full of pride. They're violent. In verse 6, verse 7, their eyes stand out with fatness. Look, Listen, they have more than the heart could wish. So this saint's going, they've got it made. And I'm, as you see here, struggling. Verse 12, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verse 14, for all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. Sometimes we feel like that as believers. You know, it seems like God's correction in our life to make us more like Him is a process that is not easy. It's painful at times. And the scariest thing to hear is is when a preacher's up there telling you, you're going to suffer to get closer to God. Who wants to hear that? The last thing I want is a trial. But the trial's necessary for me to understand God's ways because of my nature. So God has to do that in order for me to see and understand him. But that's God's process with us. And a lot of Christians, well, I'm out. I'm, I'm done. I'd rather just be like the world. And then they suffer much worse. Much worse. But this saint's going, man, they got it made. I'm the one being plagued. I'm the one being chastened all the time. And he says, if I you know, say this or whatever, I'm going to offend him, which we know is true. But watch this. When I thought, verse 16, to know this, it was too painful for me. And verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary. It wasn't until he went into the holy place of God and he spent time with God that everything was put into perspective. The more time you spend with God, the less you want of this world. What's it turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So as believers as we if we don't spend time with God in the holy place, the sanctuary, like this saint, we may end up like that struggling to see the world prosper while we suffer as believers. But God says when you go into the sanctuary and you begin to see the beauties of God in all the perfections, something happens. You start to see everything through the lens of God. You start to realize this is what purpose is. This is what life. Jesus said, I have come to give life and life more abundantly. To be spiritually minded, Romans 8, 6, is is life and peace. To be carnally minded is death. People that we see prospering that hate God or don't care for God, they're actually very, they're walking dead people. And their end, by the way, is going to be a disaster. That's why our job is to bring them in to see the the purpose of God and that God's love for them. Again, everything is put into perspective with the saint of God when they enter into the sanctuary. If they stay out of the sanctuary, The showbread, the altar of incense, the golden candlestick, they start to grow weary and they'll quit. Or they'll give up and their heart won't be in it anymore. So, as believers, may God help us to enter into the sanctuary to learn, which we will in these next few weeks, how important that sanctuary is for every believer for every day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the holy word of God. Help us, Lord, to better understand. The purpose of the holy place, the laver, of course, but the holy place is a place to get to gain rest, to find and discover the beauties of God, to know the perfections of God, to help us to understand our purpose, to understand Your purpose for our life, and to know our end—that our end is with You for all eternity. May God you help us to give that eternal perspective versus a temporal perspective, and may You bless the hours we enter into worship. May Christ be lifted up. May you give unction unto our pastor as he preaches the word of God and may you draw all that are present closer to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church, Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285.